We are continuing this morning with our in-depth look at the Ten Commandments. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that passage starting on page 77. As you turn there, um, just a little bit of recap. It is tempting for us to hold a belief about God and about His Word that describes the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament as fundamentally about the law and judgment, about wrath, about God's anger at humanity's unwillingness to obey His law. And conversely, to look at the New Testament and the God of the New Testament, Jesus in particular, as overflowing with love and grace and not really worried about the law at all. To think that the anger of the Old Testament is swallowed completely by the grace of the New Testament. The problem with that understanding is it just does not line up at all with what we see in Scripture. In the New Testament, well, we see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, always. God doesn't change from eternity past to eternity future. God is the same. In the New Testament, as much as in the Old, God, God's wrath is poured out on unfaithfulness and, in, and on sin. In the Old Testament, no less than in the New, God's grace is given to broken people incapable of pleasing God in any way. We sometimes call the, this, the commandments the gospel according to Moses because the law was always intended, always intended to be a prod and a pointer to the grace of God. It was always intended to show God's people that God's requirement of holiness was infinitely beyond them. That they all needed an alien righteousness, a righteousness from outside of themselves, placed on them against their will to change their will so that their will would be redeemed. It was always, the Ten Commandments, the law was always aimed at the divine meeting point of the cross and the empty tomb. God has only ever had one plan. The law was always about grace and none are righteous any other way. This morning we're looking particularly at the ninth commandment, but we are so prone to misunderstand, prone to twist God's word. We need the Lord himself among us, restraining our sins, speaking his truth to us, his word to us. So if you're able, please stand while I pray for the spirit to be among us and then remain standing as I read from Exodus 20. Pray, pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word once again because only in your word do we find full truth. Only in your word can we see you at work. We pray that you would restrain our sin. Open our eyes, soften our hearts that we would see clearly, believe, repent, and trust. That we would walk in a manner pleasing to you as those you have redeemed. Pray that you would glorify yourself in the reading and the preaching of your word today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Exodus 20. I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter and read through uh, our verse for this morning, verse 16. This is God's word. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love, covenant-keeping love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. In verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Several years ago, while we were still living back east and George was still an infant, I can remember being in our backyard playing water with Ivy. That's, in case you're curious, that's her running around crazily while I squirt the hose at her. It's a real complicated game. Um, While we were out there, I noticed something. Our backyard, we had kind of a a red flagstone deck area. Uh, And as I was spraying the water at Ivy, I noticed that the red was getting redder. The red paving stones were getting a good bit brighter in color as I aimed the hose around the yard. Now, those of you who've lived back east, you know that it's not uncommon to get quite a lot of rain on a regular basis, especially compared to here. That summer, we'd gotten exceptional rain even for there. And along the way, unnoticed in all the rain that we had those red flagstones had accumulated i don't even know what moss lichen lichen something that had turned them from red to kind of a brown and then almost to a black but it had happened so slowly so subtly that none of us had noticed until i started spraying and some of it started coming off it's out in plain sight and yet because it happened slowly It was easy to miss, easy to overlook in favor of the more glaring problems in the yard, the dandelions that threatened to take over, the Virginia creeper that was trying to pull down an entire tree, all of those sorts of things. The grass that needed to be mowed again and again and again and again, multiple times a week, you know. Our daily awareness of and obedience to God's commandments often functions the same way. We are focused on the big, obvious problems, the dangers of adultery and the way that it destroys marriage, the threat of murder, even coveting, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Even coveting we know is a problem and we work to avoid it. But probably more than any other, violations of the ninth commandment are like the whatever it was on that terrace, in plain sight, but invisible. Because it's subtle, and it moves slowly, and it's easy. Because it starts small, possibly even with good intentions, but one lie leads to another, which leads to another, and another, and another. Small lies become big lies. Big lies become life-dominating falsehoods. And without quite realizing what's happened, we look around, 
and we discover ourselves to be something, someone totally different than who we thought. One commentator said that no other commandment could be broken so easily over the phone with so little chance of being discovered. As a society, we are characterized by untruth masquerading as truth. And this reality is growing greater and more all-consuming every day. But before we jump all the way forward to today, let's start with the narrow focus, the specific action that is forbidden in the commandment. Uh, And then we'll work our way out from there, right? The commandment, using technical language, refers to serving as a witness in a trial and while on the witness stand testifying something other than the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. It's perjury. It is lying under oath. In the technical sense, it is falsely bearing witness in court. And we get that, right? Even today, in our day, it is actually a crime to lie under oath. In and of itself, apart from anything else that happens, it is a crime to lie under oath. It's perjury. The whole justice system stands or falls on the ability to trust what is spoken in that place. If falsehood creeps in there unchecked, it undermines any possibility of true justice. If witnesses can speak falsely, then all we have is an official means of winning a personal vendetta. That's it. And y'all, that's a serious issue today when almost all penalties for crimes are non-capital, are non-lethal. Most of them are financial. In the ancient Near East, in Old Testament times and even in New Testament times, the majority of the laws were capital crimes, punishable by death. And of course, forensic investigation didn't exist even a little. They'd never encountered a CSI. All they had was eyewitness testimony. Outside of Israel, you could be convicted and killed on the testimony of a single witness. One person. If one person was willing to lie in court then a neighbor who was annoying or who had slighted them in some way or who they just didn't like could be condemned to die on the basis of that one lie. In more recent times, because this is not a a phenomenon that's gone away, in more recent times the Salem witch trials are probably the most well-known example of this kind of justice. Uh, But it's been common throughout history. In Israel... God decreed that first, no one could be put to death except on the witness of at least two people whose testimony corroborated. They had separately to say the same thing happened. And second, if you accuse someone, if you testify against someone and it comes out in the trial that your testimony is false, if they are vindicated, you get the punishment you tried to inflict on them. So if you, te- if you falsely testify against somebody in a matter that would result in their death and they are vindicated, you die. It's a serious issue. But even with those safeguards in place, justice still relied on the testimony of witnesses. Bearing false witness is perverting justice to serve your own selfish ends. Even if you think those ends are good ends, Speaking untruth is, using, is, is relying on falsehood, on lies, to support your own 
selfish ends. It actively destroys your neighbor. If not his life, certainly his reputation. Now, we've seen in the other commandments that the law of categories, I've called it, applies, that the commandment will specifically forbid the worst or one of the worst, uh, most egregious examples of this particular sin, uh, the principle in play. Cold-blooded, premeditated murder is the worst form of violation of life, right? Uh, Adultery is the worst form of violation of covenant intimacy. But in every case, the worst form stands for all the other versions as well. In this commandment, bearing false witness in court against your neighbor is the worst form of violating truthfulness. But all the other types of falsehood are equally forbidden. And yet, as we said earlier, it is so easy to fall into the trap of lying with the best of intentions. After all, everyone does it. Doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Little white lie is not going to hurt anybody. In fact, it'll actually protect someone. Save face. We all shade the truth to make ourselves look a little better. We all structure the stories we tell about ourselves so that we look good without the distraction of the messiness and the nuance of life as it actually happened. The nuance of the real world. We may say all true things. This is where it gets really hard. We may say all true things, but the way that we say them, the order in which we tell them, we present them, and the things that we leave out and don't tell, all combine to imply something that isn't true at all. We exaggerate our importance and our usefulness and we minimize the contributions of others. We take pictures of the best parts of our lives and we put that stuff online. So that everybody will see that our lives are amazing. And we just don't talk about all of those other things where our life feels like it's falling apart and the laundry is piled to the ceiling. Just as one possible example. (laughs) No comment. Um, The entire idea of advertising, marketing, is just to tell a the part of the story, the part of the product that will make you most likely to shell out your money for this thing that I'm trying to sell. It is accepted practice to put your resume together with language aimed at hiding errors and faults and showing only the side of you that is most advantageous. Most advantageous to me, I should point out. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, It is not wrong to showcase the best, most applicable part of your product or your service or your experience, as long as your intention is not to deceive. As long as you're not communicating something that isn't true, whether by outright lie or by implication or even by omission, as long as you're not conveying something untrue, then it's not really an issue. It's okay to highlight the important parts. That's fine. But when our intent is to deceive, when our intent is to hide the truth, then we fall afoul of the ninth commandment. God is clear throughout both testaments. He does not lie. Indeed, He cannot lie. Jesus said that He is the truth. 
that he defines truth in his own being. As those who worship the Lord and are covered by the blood of Jesus, we are called to emulate his truthfulness, to uphold truth in every part of our lives, even to our own harm if necessary. The Lord says, and I, I, Proverbs or Psalms, I forget. The Lord says, blessed is he who, swe- who swears an oath and fulfills it even to his own harm. We keep our word. We tell the truth. We are known as those who speak truth or who are defined by truth. Now, there are two things that I have to address before we move forward with this. We are called to uphold the truth, but there are two categories of untruth that are generally understood as not forbidden by this commandment, or not directly, exactly forbidden. Uh, the first is uh, two, two categories. These two categories are t- traditionally called, first, lies of jocularity, and second, lies of necessity. Lies of jocularity are generally pretty easy. For example, it's a comedian telling a story, this happened to me while I was on the way here, thus and such happened. And everybody in the room knows, no, it didn't happen to you, or no, it didn't happen while you were on the way here. This is part of your set. You're telling a story to be funny. Everybody understands that. Everyone in the room knows that it didn't actually happen, or at least didn't happen in the way that the story is told. It isn't meant to be believed. It's meant to be funny. The point, the goal is not malice, is not deception, simply simply humor. And of course, there's gray area because some humor is malicious, and that is forbidden. But just in general, a, 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 a humorous story told that everybody understands that, that it's a story, not truth, is not covered by this. The, the intent is important. There's no intent to deceive. The other category that doesn't violate the commandment is much more difficult, a vastly more difficult commandment to, or uh, concept to category to get our, our heads around. It's called the lie of necessity. Now, we tend to think of things like little white lies as you know, things that we say to avoid embarrassment, either for ourselves or for somebody else, but that's not included in the lie of necessity. In one sense, avoiding embarrassment is avoiding the consequences of my own actions. Intent to deceive for the purpose of saving face is still intent to deceive. It is not necessary to save face. We are called to be humble, even when it hurts. If it's humility, if it's genuine humility, the chances are good it's going to hurt. Just Let's be clear about that. Rather, when we're speaking of lies of necessity, Really what we're talking about is the very, very rare cases, situations where a lie is literally necessary to save a life. Now let me be clear, necessary is absolutely key here. It is not, I judge that a lie will better accomplish the purpose, the means, the ends for which I think are are important. That's just the ends justifying the means. I think the end's important, and so it's necessary to lie to get to that end. No, that's, that is not a lie of necessity. 
The lie of necessity happens when we are forced into a situation of having to choose between the sin of lying on one hand and another more grievous sin on the other. The classic example uh, is those who were working the Underground Railroad, getting slaves out of the South, uh, those who were hiding Jews from the Nazis, and then the, the Nazi squads come by the door and, say, and they ask, are there Jews hidden in this house? At that point, your choice you have two choices. You can tell the truth and participate in the death of those that you are hiding, or you can tell a lie. Of course, in that situation, you choose to lie. You say that there are no Jews in the house, even though there are Jews in the house. Obviously, it is a tragic situation with no good answer. There is no good answer to that. There's only a less bad answer. Lies are always wrong, always the result of sin in some way, but sometimes they're the least wrong option available. We should grieve about that, but we are called to uphold righteousness above all else and enforce into that sort of situation. Sometimes it is necessary, very rarely it is necessary to lie. But is it simply enough when we think about do not bear false witness, be a person of truth, is it simply enough to speak no word that isn't true? Is that sufficient? We all know that the truth can be used to flay someone, to utterly destroy a neighbor without ever saying a word that isn't true. It is not necessary to speak untrue words to violate this commandment. We must speak the truth, of course. But as Paul told the Ephesians, we must speak the truth in love. And that is why all forms, all forms of gossip are violations of this commandment. Obviously, it's wrong to make up stories about somebody, right? This is obvious. I hope. Please tell me it's obvious. It's always wrong just to make up a story out of whole cloth But the thing is, if you just make a story up out of whole cloth, most people will see through it pretty quickly. It's not going to convince people. The truly insidious gossip is that which is mostly true, with just a hint of falsehood mixed in. Or maybe even all true on the surface, but told with a subtle slant to make the subject look awful. To destroy someone's reputation despite speaking no word that isn't true. Intentionally twisting the retelling of the words or events to put someone in the worst light possible. Gossip is confessing someone else's sin to a third party. We are to seek truth, not just facts, but truth in every conversation, in every relationship. It is, it's titillating. It, is, it makes us feel better about our own hidden faults to talk about the awful things that somebody else has done, right? Because if he did that, if she did this, then I'm not so bad. I'm, at least I didn't do that thing. I'm doing all right. If I can push somebody else below me, if I can stand on their back, then I feel better about myself. If I can look down on someone, then I'm not the bottom of the heap. In fact, given what they did, I'm actually doing pretty well. But our goal should always be building up our neighbor, especially building up our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
when you're considering telling a story about someone, there are a couple of questions that you need to ask yourself first. First, is it true? This one's obvious, right? Is it true? If the answer is no, don't say it. This is obvious. It's simple. It should be obvious anyway. It is always wrong to speak untruth. But second, if the person that you're telling the story about were standing there with you, would they agree with that characterization that you're presenting? Or would they agree with how you tell the story? Would you be willing to tell that story in front of them? The answer to any of that is no. You probably shouldn't tell it. If you would tell the story, would you tell it the same way if they were standing there? Again, if the answer to any of that is no, just don't tell it. Gossip is using facts to distort the truth. It is using true statements to destroy your neighbor or your brother or sister, even even when it is cloaked in, please pray for so-and-so. Please pray for Nancy. She's really struggling with whatever. That's the pious Christian way to just destroy people, to spread gossip and feel good about ourselves. Well, I'm just asking for prayer. It's wicked. Gossip is always wrong. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are to keep not just his or her life, but you are to keep his or her reputation intact. It is a blessing to cover a sin. When you tell stories, when you share things, do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now before I go further, I I have to address the church discipline process and how these, this commandment kind of interacts with that process. Now, obviously, in a formal disciplinary process, in a hearing or whatever, don't bear false witness, right? This is clear. Speak the truth, period. But we were talking about gossip and sharing someone's sin with a third party, and I said that that was wrong, and I think it is, but doesn't Jesus basically tell us to do exactly that in Matthew 18? If you've got your Bible with you, flip over to that. It's, I believe it's 1046 in the Pew Bibles. Um, Matthew 18, if I can get to it, I've got a bookmark here. Here we go. Um, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let, them be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it certainly sounds like verse 16 is saying that I should go tell some people about what this dude did so we can go together and confront him, right? That's kind of what it sounds like. But no. Note that verse 16 says, take one or two others along with you. But verse 17 says, tell it to the church. Verse 16 does not countenance gossip or sharing with those, and this is key, who don't already know about the sin. When you take somebody with you to confront your brother, bring someone who already knows about the sin, who is a witness to the sin, not just a witness to what you said about the sin. 
The intent is to bring along others who already know about it and can serve as additional witnesses. If there's no one else who knows, and the person refuses to repent when confronted, then then you move straight to telling it to the church and to a more formal process because there's no way to bring others along without sinning against that person by gossiping. Now, there's obviously a lot more that we could unpack as far as church discipline goes. There's a lot of ways that those that people use the ideas of gossip and slander to short-circuit the discipline process. I think we'll probably talk about some of that next week. Even if we don't, though, that's a lot more than we have time for this morning. If you want to talk some more about it, come talk to me. I'm happy to talk. Let's get together and have a cup of coffee or something. Uh, For this moment, we're looking at the untruths that we deal in, the lies that define our lives. And let's be honest, often the biggest lies, certainly the most common lies, are the ones that we tell ourselves. I tell myself that I'm doing pretty well, that my life is basically pretty good, that I'm basically holy, that I am living as God would have me live, that God likes the things that I like, that God dislikes the things that I dislike. And maybe there's some truth there. Maybe your likes and his do align some. But if you're a sinner, there is a lot that you like which is sinful and detestable to the Lord, abhorrent to Him. Our hearts continue to rebel against Him. There are even things which you dislike even which you hate, which the Lord loves. We rebel against Him constantly. When I tell those lies to myself, when I believe those lies, we are also very prone to believe because it makes us feel good, makes us feel righteous, like we've got it all together, right? We want to feel like that. When I tell those lies and believe those lies, I am creating God in my image. I am redefining God. And that's no good. Often the next step after that, as bad as that is, uh, I am telling the Lord, I'm defining the Lord by my own likes and dislikes, and as bad as that is, often the next step is demanding everybody else worship the God that I've created in my image. Defining righteousness by my own likes dislikes. This is one of the roots of hypocrisy and legalism in our church cultures. It is the essence of social media and cancel culture. You must be like me. I've got it all figured out. But more importantly, it is one of the main things that drives us away from the true God. It drives us away from the true God. Because I've remade Him in my image, I don't need to repent because he likes what I like and he dislikes what I dislike. He he wants me to keep doing what I'm already doing, obviously, so I don't need to repent. But any true view of the cross must stand in the way of that self-delusion. I must preach the gospel to myself I must consistently call myself from Scripture to repent of the sins that God hates and to align my likes with His, not to align His with mine. 
we must recognize that we are not okay. That we don't have everything in order. That the Lord detests our sin and calls us to a holiness that is defined by Him and by His character and not by what I like and dislike. A holiness that challenges our sinful likes and dislikes at every turn. That requires our repentance every day. We must preach the gospel to ourselves so much so often that we can never forget that we are living, as one pastor of mine said, told me, to, preached in college, that we are living in daily, desperate dependence on the blood of Christ. We must preach the gospel to ourselves so much and so often that that is the refrain consistently running through our heads. Daily, desperate dependence on the blood of Christ for our righteousness. That all of our righteousness comes from the blood of Christ shed in our place on the cross. That all of our hope is found solely in the empty tomb. And in Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand, testifying on our behalf. In that hope alone do we stand or fall. In that hope alone will we be saved from God's wrath against our unrighteousness. For that hope alone is true. For it depends solely on God, and God is truth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you because you are true. We confess that we are steeped in lies. We steep ourselves in lies. We would much rather believe comfortable falsehoods. So Lord, we pray that you would restrain our sin. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to faithfulness. Lead us to truth. That we might be pleasing servants to you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.